And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. She served as the Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer in the New South Wales Health Department and Foundation Professor of Nursing at Corrections Health at UTS. And she was awarded an AM for significant contributions to nursing and midwifery. She's the Deputy Chair of the Northern Sydney Local Health District. And today she's going to speak to you about a really important topic, philosophy, persuasion, perfidy, persistence and passion, lots of Ps, the politics of primary health care. Please give a big warm welcome for Professor Mary Chiarella. Oh my heavens, thank you so much. It's so absolutely wonderful to be here. Uh, I can't tell you how many of these conferences I've been to, it just proves I'm really old. Um, but every single one, there's just such a buzz and it's such a joy, so thank you for having me. And obviously before I begin, I wish to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, upon whose ancestral lands, oh no, am I up? No? Okay, there I am. Upon whose ancestral lands we are privileged to meet today. I pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and any Indigenous people who may be present at this conference today. I recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture as the oldest continuing culture in the world and celebrate the diversity of language, culture, custom, ceremony and knowledge of First Peoples as traditional owners, custodians and communities with an ongoing connection across the land, sea and waterways. I acknowledge the land, that the lands on which we all live and work are unceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So let me tell you what we're going to talk about. So we're going to start off with uh, basically primary healthcare philosophy and then my philosophy as a nurse and a midwife and then putting nursing and midwifery back into primary healthcare, the politics of primary healthcare. I, I just like the alliteration, okay? Go with the P's, okay? Um, persuasion, perfidy, perseverance and passion. So what are the elements of primary healthcare? So obviously it's a whole of society approach to health. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I just want to go there because it's important. It's the highest possible level of health and well-being. It's an equitable distribution. Equity is critical to everything that's ever written about primary health care. It focuses on people's needs and as early as possible along the continuum from, I'm just making sure I've got my slides and my, and my finger coordinated here. Um, it focuses on health promotion, disease prevention, treatment, rehab and onto palliative care. And it is as close as feasible to people's everyday environment. So it doesn't really matter what sector of healthcare we work in, we all need primary health care because it is the only way that our health system in the future is going to be sustainable because it helps address health inequities and heavens knows we have plenty of those. It improves quality of life. It can, able, it can enable culturally appropriate care in place and on country. It can provide early intervention to prevent more serious chronic disease in both the young and the old. It helps keep people who frequently present to ED out of hospital and it assists with appropriate end of life care. So what's my philosophy for primary healthcare? Well, my view is that healthcare needs to be free at the point of delivery. That was the promise of Medicare. 
And it is important for me that we are talking about primary health care and not only primary medical care. Because we have to remember that only 17% of the primary health care workforce are actually GPs. The other 83% are made up of nurses, midwives, nurse practitioners, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health practitioners, and allied health practitioners. And these experienced clinicians are delivering excellent integrated care, often to disadvantaged groups that augments rather than fragments the patient's healthcare management. And the, the, the reason I'm saying these things is because many of the arguments against them suggest otherwise. So how do we put nursing and midwifery back into primary healthcare? Well, a current argument against greater use of nurses in midwives in primary healthcare is that this is about substitution of GP care. But this would suggest that GPs are everywhere doing everything in primary healthcare, which is demonstrably not the case. The resistance by medical professional groups to the concept of multidisciplinary primary healthcare, unless remuneration and control rests with a GP, is both Luddite and discourteous to other equally well-educated, equally well-regulated health professions. As Ross Gittens pointed out quite recently, other countries with good health care make sure their GPs can't insist on doing things that could be done by other health workers, nurses, nurse practitioners, pharmacists and physios. So where, where have I gone? Oh, here we are. The politics of primary health. So in Australia, the politics of primary health care are tied up with the funding of primary health care. The medical professional groups, the AMA and the RACGP in particular, continue to oppose any moves on behalf of nurses and midwives to own, to move legitimately into primary health care in their own right. These, by the way, that you, you have up here on your, on your right um, are two press releases, one from 2022, one from 2023, from the AMA and the RACGP. But nurses can work in that space for and on behalf of a medical practitioner, in that the billing is done by a GP. This suggests that medicine must believe it would suffer a significant financial loss if this were to happen, that nurses and midwives were to move independently into that primary healthcare space. But the existing funding, there we go, I'm gonna to have to keep watching this, aren't I? Brings considerable financial rewards to the medical profession in terms of controls and or monopolies on certain practices, such as prescribing, treatments and referrals. In the past, organized medicine has sanctioned the transference of many tasks that were not of themselves re revenue raising to nurses and midwives, such as venipuncture, such as um, dialysis, but it has actively resisted the transference of others that were income related. So let's have a look at these challenges to the status quo in primary health care. Where have you gone? There you go. Traditionally, and particularly amongst medical groups, there is still a belief that doctors are in charge of the healthcare system and the patients. All other staff are subordinate to them and controlled by them. The possibility of challenge by another healthcare professional, unless similarly qualified, would be unthinkable because, it is argued, 
they would not be sufficiently meritorious to make that challenge. And thank you, Annabel Crabb, by the way, because I'm, I'm writing about merit today, or talking about merit today. I don't know if any of you read her fabulous article on merit in the Sydney Morning Herald yesterday. Gee, it was good. I loved it. It was actually about sport, but it doesn't matter. Um, <clears throat> so let's have a look at today's healthcare reality. Nowadays, we know that many nurses and midwives are both highly skilled and qualified, <clears throat> and many are more highly skilled and qualified than the junior doctors who practice, practice in our healthcare system. They are capable of equal participation in healthcare and healthcare decision making. They are also equally as capable of recognizing when a patient or woman is unwell or, or, or their treatment is not working. Yet, at the level of politics, although often not informally amongst clinicians, the criterion for equal participation in clinical decision-making debates has been nothing less than a medical degree. This has been the catch cry of the doctors opposed to the introduction of nurse practitioners in Australia. David Hall, many years ago, described similar phenomena for other marginalized groups as the myth of meritocracy. Murray, on the subject of merit, has this to say. Merit is defined by people in power to reward what people in power become. Merit, as we know it, explicitly values particular experiences and abilities. The ones developed by people in power. And therefore, implicitly devalues others. Meritocracy calls those who conform to these standards equal. Those who are different, oh, hello, oh, God, I've gone way, way ahead now. Come back, come back, come back, sorry. God, I'll get this right in a minute, sorry. Meritocracy calls those who conform to these standards equal. Those who are different, it calls unqualified. So let's have a look at ex an example of persuasion in the face of specific and significant political opposition. I worked through the whole of this, so I know this so well. Um, in 1985, New South Wales was the first state to move into the tertiary education sector for nurses. In 1986, we got the introduction of CNCs and CNSs into that award. And then in 1988, at this very conference, the minister was visiting, it would have been a Thursday, and someone in the audience put up their hand and said to the minister, Minister, what do you think about nurse practitioners? I swear they could have asked him what he thought of robots or humanoids, you know? Absolutely support them, he said. <laughs> and the rest is history. Um, so basically, the, the chief nurse of the time, Judith Mepham, never missed a beat. Pat Staunton was here as GenSec of the uh, NSWNMA. Judith, Judith Cornell was in charge of the college. The three of them, I used to call them the deadly trio. And they basically got together and just drove it from then on. And so we had the first discussion, um, sorry, the first New South Wales Nurse Practitioner Working Group in 1989. I was on that working, well, I was one of the writers for that working group. In 1991, we published the stage one discussion paper. How am I doing? Oh yeah, I'm, 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 I'm with me. In 1992, we published the stage two discussion paper. 
1995, after major research, we actually published the stage three discussion paper. And I was on all three of those working groups. And it seemed to me like a no-brainer, because all that we were doing was recognizing, rewarding, and regulating expert clinical nursing. I, as someone who, I, my late husband worked for charity, I was the breadwinner in our family, and I wanted to move forward with my career. I'd been an expert clinical nurse. But in order to move forward, I had to either go into management or education. This seemed to me like an exciting clinical pathway, nurse practitioners. I never imagined the level of opposition we were going to get. It just seemed like regulating what nurses were already doing and remunerating what nurses were already doing. Well, ah, ah, is all I say. Ah. So this was the sort of opposition that we got. Militant nurses making claims for glory. <laughs> Semi-qualified people. Wingers in the forward pack. But come forward. The AMA submission takes a strong stance on the role of nurse practitioners. We are talking 2022. Independent nurse practitioners seeking the same level of authority, autonomy, and scope of practice as GPs will compromise the quality, safety, efficiency, and cost effectiveness of patient care. 2023. Do not think that this has gone away. But we kept moving forward back there in 1988. So the legislation to approve the introduction of nurse practitioners, we went first in New South Wales, 1998. 2001, Victoria. 2002, South Australia. 2004, Western Australia. 2005, the ACT. 2005, Queensland. 2005, the first Australian Nurse Practitioners Conference was held. 2006, Tasmania. 2008, Northern Territory. And where are we today? Well, as of December 2022, there are 2,492 endorsed nurse practitioners in Australia, and it is a recognised, legitimised and protected title. We have... I know. And let me say that in this room today, there are some of the pioneers of that work, and I know how hard it was because I stood behind you. <laughs> you were on the front line, I was fighting these people. We have nurse practitioner standards for accreditation of courses, standards for practice. We have an Australasian College of Nurse Practitioners. We even have a Nurse Practitioner Week to recognise and celebrate nurse practitioners in Australia. So, in short, we have arrived and yet we still have to persuade. And let me say that the struggle for midwives in primary healthcare is still ongoing. And, and the difficulties that midwives have in primary healthcare is, is another fight that needs to be had. So let's have a look at persuasion. We're on the P's now, as you've probably gathered. Um, so persuasion needs to take many forms. So this is, if, this is Mary Kirella's politics 101, if you like. So there needs to be absolute solidarity between the nursing professional groups and similarly between the midwifery professional groups. The messages have to be consistent. The minute one of us breaks rank as a professional group, governments will go, oh, well, we can't say what they want because that lot wants something different. 
you know? So that level of solidarity. When we were doing these fights in the early days, and, and many of the Nursing and Midwifery Association people were in what we used to call Chiarella's Bitch and Kitchen. <laughs> so we'd go there the night before we met with the AMA and the RACGP and RACMAR and all the other groups, and we'd agree on what we agreed on. And anything we didn't agree on, we'd have a row between ourselves, but the next day we'd be rock solid when we went into that meeting room. And that was critical. And if they raised something that we weren't rock solid on, we'd say, sorry, we're not discussing that today. Now, we haven't, um, we haven't got a position on that at the moment. You've got to be that smart. There needs to be meaningful coalitions between consumer groups and professions. And the midwives, by the way, are much stronger on this than we are as nurses. There needs to be an indisputable evidence base for any argument that is being made. There is. That's a given. We know that the evidence is all there. That's not the issue. There needs to be lobbying of politicians and ministerial staffers. Whoops, I missed one. There needs to be strong relationships with public servants in healthcare. There also needs to be robust relations with public servants in Treasury and Cabinet. You'll see why in a minute. There needs to be a vibrant, positive media presence. TV, radio, social media. And there needs to be a legitimate academic set of resources to demonstrate that evidence base. And now, to perfidy. The definition by Miriam Webster is the quality or state of being faithless or disloyal, treachery or an act or an instance of treachery. And it may seem like an odd issue, no, come back, there you go, to raise during this celebration of the effectiveness of persuasion. But for every step forward over the 40 years that I have been campaigning for clinical careers for nurses and midwives, there has been strong opposition that has still held us back. If we are to make greater progress, we have to understand those forces. If we fail to learn the lessons of history, we will be forced to repeat them. So as I showed you earlier, the AMA RACGP opposition to nurse practitioners continues. It's in their current position statements. The 2020 MBS Review Task Force, 14 out of 16 of whom were doctors, no nurses, final report, endorsed none of the 14 recommendations of its own nurse practitioner reference group. 10 out of 12 nurse practitioners on that one. Instead, the report proposed three unrelated recommendations that further restricted the practice of nurse practitioners who provide services subsidized by the MBS. A decision not to endorse any of the 14 recommendations can only be viewed as a decision not to invest in nursing and the health of Australian communities. So, with a change of government and significant political support, we imagined that we had, at the very least, mastered the politics of primary health care. The 2023 to 24 federal budget, very exciting for primary health care after much lobbying and consultation. Medicare rebates for care provided by nurse practitioners will increase by 30%. Nurse practitioners will be eligible to, to participate in Medicare's subsidised multidisciplinary team case conferences, offering better support for people with chronic conditions. A new $50 million scholarship programme 
will encourage nurses and midwives to undertake postgraduate study and support registered nurses to become nurse practitioners. The budget also committed to remove the red tape that prevents nurse practitioners and midwives from providing care to the full extent of their education and ability. They will be able to independently provide services under Medicare and prescribe medicines on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme. And there is our wonderful Jed. And she actually did the press releases for this. And believe me, we thought we'd arrived. But if the price for liberty is eternal vigilance, then we weren't vigilant enough. In her July 2023 newsletter from ICN at Montreal, the Commonwealth Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer advised that the government would not increase the MBS fees and rebates for nurse practitioners general attendance items by 30% until the 1st of July 2024. Also, the government will not expand the eligibility for nurse practitioners to participate in MBS subsidised multidisciplinary case conferences until that date. Many primary healthcare nurse practitioners cannot afford to keep going until then. They have been hanging on in the knowledge that this funding was imminent. At this information, Jed was ad advised, was apparently buried deep in the budget papers. And none of us thought to ask about the actual date of implementation. We simply imagined that a 2023 budget, 2024 budget started in 2023, like you would, yeah? The MBS increases for the medical practitioners will commence in October this year. And furthermore, under the Health Insurance Act 1973 that administers the MBS, appointments to key government positions administering the MBS cannot occur without, in some cases, consultation with, and in other cases, the agreement of the AMA, and that was written into the legislation in 1973. So no wonder, no wonder that stranglehold is there. We have to do something about this. So, oh, hello, I got behind myself. You see, I get excited. This is the problem. So moving forward with our eyes wide open, given that primary health care holds the solution to so many of the problems in secondary, tertiary and quaternary health care, and given that medical practitioners are only part of the solution, and given, oh, come on, given that primary health care nurses, midwives and allied health practitioners working to full scope of practice is clearly the key to accessible and equitable primary health care, how can we progress the philosophy of primary health care in this political climate? I do have answers. <laughs> the answers are perseverance and passion. So, the combination of perseverance and passion is described by researchers as grit. Oh God, we've got grit, come on. If there's one thing we're good on, it's grit. Perseverance is described as a continued effort to do or achieve something despite difficulties, failure or opposition. The action or condition of an or an instance of persevering. Passion is described as an intense driving or overmastering feeling or conviction and a strong liking, desire for or devotion to some activity, object or concept. 
A 2016 study identified two main factors to develop perseverance or grit, which were purpose commitment and positive affect. And grit, as an amalgam of perseverance and passion, is associated with a stronger orientation towards deeper, more meaningful, rather than hed hedonistically pleasing activities. I spelt that wrong, I've just seen it. Just before you tell me. So, in a way, the passion part is easy, isn't it, for us as nurses and midwives. Many of us are passionate about patient and woman-centred care. Many of us want to deliver the best quality of care we possibly can. Most of us know the evidence as to how to d deliver the best quality of care we possibly can. But it is very difficult if we are unable to do that due to the politics of health. So, are we on so? Yes, yes. This is where perseverance comes in. We cannot allow archaic systems to continue. We need to continue to speak up and lobby about best practice in healthcare. And we need to provide the evidence that nursing and midwifery primary healthcare is the answer to the overcrowding in our hospitals. And it's not a bad time to be doing it because we live in a time where the world of healthcare politics is changing because nurses are starting to take on some of the top jobs. University leadership, CEOs, CEs, ministry personnel, private sector, federal parliament, National Health and Medical Research Council. Let me give you some examples. Oh, hello. Come back. Here we are. Trish Davidson, Vice-Chancellor at the University of Wollongong. She's a nurse. This is what she says. Nursing is a phenomenal profession and one in which you can pivot and change identity and move from setting to setting. When I started in nursing, a biomedical approach was the dominant model of healthcare. If I had said to a cardiologist in the 1970s that depression was a risk factor in heart disease, he would have looked at me and said I was crazy. They would have said to just get over it. But now we know there is so much more to health. It is about the circumstances in which we are born, live and die. She's not going away from nursing, is she? Let's have a look at somebody else. This one you'll know. Ah, Susan. Secretary, New South Wales Ministry for Health, Susan Pearce is a nurse. She always tells you that she is. Deb Deb Deputy Secretary, New South Wales Ministry for Health, Deb Wilcox, is a nurse. She always tells you that she is. Four out of 17 CEOs in New South Wales are nurses, and they will tell you that they are. Look at this in the private sector. I heard her speaking at a lunch recently. Susan Martin, she's the Managing Director of Johnson & Johnson, Australia and New Zealand. She said, nursing gave me the opportunity to fulfill my passion for both healthcare and travel, my skills being put to use in Australia, London and New Zealand. She wasn't talking about nursing, by the way, at the time. That was how she introduced herself. Here we are, here's our gorgeous Jed. This was her maiden speech. Nursing demands immediate solidarity with people in their hours of greatest need. Nursing is also about teamwork and collaboration across the health professions. It obliges hard, exhausting, physical and emotional labor, yet no one had a more humble appreciation of its rewards of community and generosity than I did. 
Nursing is about listening, listening to patients, listening to colleagues, listening to difference and accommodating it. When 80% of your industry comes from federal government income, sorry, comes from federal government coffers, your company should not be listed on the stock exchange. It should not be an option to keep your books a secret. Staffing and skill mix is at a crisis point in private aged care and it must be fixed. We must show solidarity for the needs of our ageing population because how we treat our elderly says everything about our values as a nation. That was her maiden speech. This is our tribe, gang. This is our tribe. Pretty proud, personally. Okay. Do you know this lady? Helen Haynes. This is her maiden speech. In 1986, after completing my nursing and midwifery education in Melbourne, I moved from North Carlton to Central Chiltern. Ha! I became matron at the Chiltern Bush Nursing Hospital. I was 26. A very young matron in a very small hospital in a very small place with a very small lake. <laughs> the next three years I spent in the job that I spent in the job gave me plenty of great stories and a keen understanding of place-based solutions to the challenges of rural health. The hospital kitchen was crammed with locals making jam, peppered with a surprise visit from the health inspector. Jackie Byron, who could recount watching the lads march off to the Boer War, would arrive daily by bicycle to deliver freshly caught fish from the lake for his cobber, Martin Balsarini, a light horseman who rode in the charge of Beersheba. Oh, even reading it again now, it makes me a bit, a bit tearful. There were midnight call-outs for a variety of reasons, with the local GP and the local policeman, including an encounter with a, a villain on the run, hiding in the hospital casualty room. The matron, the sergeant, and the doctor. We were quite the trio. And very recently, chair of the National Health and Medical Research Council, Caroline Homer, she's a midwife. She's the leading midwifery researcher in Australia and she has an international reputation as a scholar and leader in maternal and newborn healthcare. Couldn't find a maiden speech, she's, but nevertheless, you'll read. Um, and service delivery. She's led research and development projects in Australia and internationally, especially in relation to health services delivery, reproductive, maternal and newborn care, human resources for health workforce development and midwifery education. She has more than 30 years of experience in the sector and she proudly calls herself a midwife on all occasions. So, where do we move from here? I'm going to move forward. But my view is that we are Amazons, not victims. Even you blokes can be Amazons. Okay. So, I have the privilege of being the only solo member of the Nursing Peaks Alliance which is the coalition of the key national nursing and midwifery organisations in Australia. ANMF, Annie Butler is on that group. In my view, this group are our modern day Amazons. They are strong and skillful warrior women and a few men. But I think it is really important that we do not present as victims because we are not. We are simply continuing the quest to have the excellence of nursing and midwifery acknowledged and recognised and legitimised by our federal governments. I believe that our state governments usually do a slightly better job than the federal government. 
as you can see from the last few slides, lots of nurses and midwives are moving into positions of influence and acknowledge and speak about the value that we provide to healthcare delivery. And so must we on all occasions and at every opportunity. And finally, you have to keep the passion and you must persevere. I cannot stress to you enough the persistence, the determination, and perhaps on occasions, the courage you are going to need to challenge what will be put in your way. There may be some amongst you who already feel that the task to put nurses and midwives back into primary health care is too great. But remember James Baldwin's words, those who say it can't be done are usually overtaken by others doing it. So you can see I'm a little bit older. You have to become the younger Amazons. You are going to have to become stronger, more passionate, more persuasive, and persevere more if necessary, because the evidence is already out there that we do make a difference. And my friends, remember perfidy. There are some who will be deceitful and are untrustworthy in an effort to hold on to power or deny you as nurses and midwives from what is professionally yours, to provide healthcare to your patients and your women. Do not be put off and do not be denied. You can do it, you have to do it. There is too much at stake, thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. We've got lots of great questions. Thank you, Mary, for that amazing speech. Uh, we've got lots of great questions coming in on Slido, so I'm going to get through as many of them as we can. We've got a little bit of time left. So Joe Wargan's asking, in rural, remote and regional Australia, they've got broad, a broad range of primary health care networks. How do you feel that they could maybe better collaborate to deliver primary health care and work together rather than maybe they might be working against each other? You talked about the importance of being united front in, yes. in your talk. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really good question. And the primary healthcare networks, I think, are key to so much of what we can achieve. But often, again, I mean, certainly, they're, they're very focused often on general practice and how they can get the next general practitioner in. My view is that this is about evidence. It is about that persuasion. And it is about educating them. And it's about educating your local community. Remember I talked about the coalitions with consumer groups and community groups? Go for the CWA, guys. <laughs> every time you know but they need to know what we can do and they need to understand what we can offer and they need to understand that actually what we can offer will be a continuity of care model whether it's nursing or midwifery what and and it's not that they're never going to have a doctor if they need a doctor well we can refer so it's really important that they understand that Fantastic. Now, we've, um, this is a popular question. Don't forget on Slido, you can upvote questions as well. Okay. This was one. Um, you, you talked mainly about nursing, and Jessica Plater was asking, are there any discussions or working parties looking into midwives taking that next step and becoming practitioners like nurses? So many, many years ago, when we introduced nurse practitioners into Australia, midwives opted not to go for a midwife practitioner role. So what midwives have instead is an endorsement to prescribe, which is under section, I think it's 95 of the Health Practitioner Regulation National Law, whereas the Nurse Practitioner Regulation is 94, so it's 
quite specific. We did have one midwife practitioner in New South Wales at the beginning. I don't know if she's still practicing, but the midwives actually opted for a different professional model. So they get endorsed to prescribe, but believe me, all of the collaborative arrangements that are coming off for nurse practitioners will also come off for midwives. Mm. That's really important. And the other thing is, guys, take a look at what Queensland's just done. Wow. Have a look at what's happened up there with the QNMU and the work that they've done on actually getting rurally based and remote based indigenous midwifery and non-indigenous midwifery midwives into those areas to do birth on country. So damned exciting. Wow. And that flows, that's fantastic. That flows well into the next question, which is talking about the social determinants of health and, and where people live. How crucial is it to factor in things like accessibility and, and infrastructure so that, so that nurses, whether they're nurse practitioners, they can deliver really effective primary health care? That's a really good question too, thank you. So basically my view is that the social determinants of health are critical and, and they are much bigger obviously than health. They're about infrastructure, they're about housing, they're about clean water, they're about education, they're all critical. And so we can't imagine when we're looking at primary health care that we only have to lobby for health, we can't. Because we have to lobby for all those social determinants of health because they are all the things that impact on people. Now, some of the work that we can do in rural and remote areas now is significantly enhanced through things like virtual healthcare. And mm. that makes a huge difference to some of the things that pre-COVID, like, you know, it was like, yeah, virtual healthcare, eh, maybe, meh. Yeah, and then, then overnight so they, oh, it just happened. It just <laughs> happened, you know? And, and so we now have significant infrastructure in that area. We did have some telehealth, we've now got a lot more. So, you know, basically those are important factors that are now coming into play that will give more co comprehensive healthcare in remote and rural areas than were before. Fantastic. Now, this is something you also alluded to as well. Julie Flynn is asking how much, you know, you, the, the, you've detailed what's happened over the last few years. How much of it is a reflection of the really misogynist attitudes that we see? Because we know nursing is mainly, you know, female-based and doctors primarily can still be, you know, pretty much a male-dominated workforce. So how much is it, is, is this a gender issue? Look, I, th I think there is a gender matter about it. I really do. But when I did my PhD, I used a thing called critical race theory, which talked about intersectionality, which was mm. actually two levels of bias. So one, I think, is about gender. But I think the other is that there's been a recognised class discourse, which was about medicine being very clever and nursing not being very clever because what nurses did was women's work. I think we've disproved mm. that completely now. You know, mm. like, it's gone. But I still think that there are people who, who tend to not know that. And so part of our job is very kindly and nicely to educate them. Without, <laughs> we don't want to fall out with them, we just want to mm. change their minds. Mm. And this is another good question as well from Graham Miller's asking, um, talking about nursing being professionalised and, and how empowered it's become over the last 40 years. And, but it's, it's also, he's asking about, could a solution be to have more nursing care centres in the community rather than GP medical centres? Oh. Yeah. No brainer. Who, who's yeah. that gentleman? <laughs> Graham. Well. Yes, Graham. Um, duh. <laughs> <laughs> so the ACT has been really brave on this. They have just gone ahead with their walk-in centres and mm. they had huge opposition to it, by the way. It was like chicken licking, you know. The sky mm. was going to fall in because they did it. Well, it didn't and they did. And they're really well utilised. 
So I, I think that we just need more of that. Mm. And again, the difficulty is that it's how you fund it. And, and we've got to get past the funding issue because at the moment, the standard funding mechanism for primary healthcare is Medicare payments, MBS payments. So people get cared for because, of, because you do a widget for them. Mm. whatever that widget is. Mm. Whereas if we had better capitation funding, whereby you might have a nurse practitioner looking after mm. a community with a, a group of nurses in that community, some midwives in that community who were actually looking after birthing women. If you had a capitation on that, then actually they could afford to live. Mm. But at the moment when I think nurse practitioners, there'll be nurse practitioners in this room who can tell me this, because I know there are some here. Um, Basically, I think it's about eight items that they have at the moment, and most of them are funded even for the same work at a lesser level than MBS mm. identical funding items for GPs. And so their ability to earn is limited. Capitation would make that easier. Mm. This is a question that I had, um, because you were talking about this. Um, there, are, there have been changes, say, for example, I know in, in Queensland and in New South Wales, say pharmacists, for example, can now prescribe some antibiotics over the counter. Yeah. And what difference do you think that will make it maybe lessening the stronghold and sort of making people aware that you don't have to necessarily go to a GP to get services? <laughs> so if, I'm sure you've all read the, the, the press releases again from the AMA and RACGP against... Yes, I, yeah. I swear they cut and pasted. They didn't really, but you know what I mean. It, it did look like they'd used exactly mm. the same argument about you know death and destruction. Um, look, I, I, I think it might. I think it might lessen a little bit. Mm. The Pharmacy Guild is a very, very strong lobbying body. Mm. We need to be much stronger in the way that we actually lobby federal government. I think you guys do a great job at state level, but I think that need for us to lobby really strongly federally. Mm is what's going to change primary healthcare funding. And, and whether we can sort of work that up, you know, from the grassroots up is, is a, a really important issue, I think. So we've got lots of questions coming in. I'm gonna to try to get through as many as we can. Helen's asking, so why do you think in country areas, particularly it's WNS, so I think it's Western New South Wales local yep. health district, um, to expect RNs and ENs to be able to tell the, the VRGS doctors what their diagnosis is? <laughs> Well, I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> Who's doing the work here? Yeah. You know, I mean, and this is about legitimization. You know, this is about legitimization of the role that we've got. I can remember years ago, in the really early days of this nurse practitioner debate, mm. long before we had nurse practitioners, talking to a doctor and he said, diagnosis is the sine qua non of the medical profession. And I said, no, it isn't. Because I said, if we didn't diagnose on night shift every night, you would never sleep. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> because basically, that's what we do. Someone comes with a headache, you go, oh, you're going to have a stroke or have you got a headache? <laughs> well, I'll make the doctor or won't I? You know, so it's that sort of thing that I think... We have to show what we're doing, mm. you know? It's the evidence base to say, look, we're already doing this. Mm. Some doctor flies in from New Zealand for a weekend in a rural town. How much does that cost? Mm. How many nurse practitioners could you appoint? What happened at Dummagee? Some of you, I'm sure, will know. Mm. Sacked five nurse practitioners to employ two GPs. They mm. never turned up. Mm. You know, this stuff is going on now. And it's wrong, and it's wasteful, mm. and it's inappropriate. I, I will get off my 
Hobby no, horse no, 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 don't get up. I, I mean, you talk about, you mentioned wastefulness, and New South Wales has just announced an, an inquiry into healthcare funding. Yes. What, what sort of opportunity is that for nurses to really make a case like you have? Oh, look, I, I think there's a huge opportunity mm. here. I mean, I, I think that it, we have to be really, really careful that they don't pluck the guts out of what's good. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that some of this community health work that we could do and enabling nurses to work to full, and midwives. To their full scope, scope of, of practice. practice is yeah. really what this is about. And because you're employing them anyway, mm. why not use them to the best that you possibly can? And do you think most people don't realise how out of step Australia is with so many other parts <laughs> of the world when it comes to like, you know, I had my children in the United States 25 years ago and nurse practitioners then were standard practice. Yes. Standard practice. That I was know. 25 years ago in the United States. Well, I, I we are I way mean, behind I had my babies you. 40 years ago in the UK, and, mm. I, and I had midwifery care. You know, it was called Domino. It was domiciliary midwifery in, out, domino. Mm. And so I was in hospital for two days. I had continuity of care midwifery. When I came to Australia, I said, you know, I, people were saying, oh, you know, we're going to see our, our obstetrician. And I said, oh, you're not well. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you? Yeah. And, and people thought I was crazy, you know. And, and I said, oh, well, I had my midwifery in the UK and I had, I had my babies in the UK and I had a midwife. They said, you're not well. Yeah. You know, because that was the thing that basically it was an, the gold standard as an obstetrician or nothing. Whereas nowadays, again, mm. the evidence base is so strong. You go to the NHMRC website, have a look at some of their case studies. One of their case studies is a whole raft of midwives who've done this work on birthing in country mm. since 2005. The evidence is incontrovertible about what it does to indigenous women's gestation, the, the health of their babies. It is incontrovertible. NHMRC gold standard. You know, someone said to me once, if continuity of care midwifery was a pill, it would have been prescribed by the federal government month, years ago. Mm. But it isn't. You know, and why isn't it? it? It isn't because of politics, not because of health. So we'll get through a few more quick questions. <laughs> um, this is a good, interesting question. They're saying overcrowding in hospitals, uh, some local her uh, health districts are looking at programs to cater for non-urgent cases through partnerships with medical practices. What do you think of that idea versus having primary care managed by experienced nurses and midwives rather than... Look, I, I'm very happy with GPs. I've got a great GP myself. You know, this is not a we hate GPs. Mm. This is a, could the RAC GP just let us practice? Um, and I think that's a really important thing to say. So I think there's eminent possibility for good partnerships, but they've got to be partnerships. It can't be the nurse or the nurse practitioner or a midwife earning money for and on behalf of a GP, mm. which by and large mm. is the way that all of that happens today. Mm. You know, the, the number of MBS, I mean, I, so I go regularly for my, for my injections. I have a great GP. I love the bones of the woman. And, but whenever I go for my vaccinations every year, she has to pop in and go, hello, Mary. Yeah. Mm. Why? Because if she doesn't see me, she can't claim. Mm. That, yeah, that system doesn't make sense. So uh, this is a question from Sean, who's from the Yas branch. He works in a prison across the border and he finds that oftentimes um, corrective services and protocols have a greater sway over the practice of primary health care nurses. And do you have any suggestions on how we, you can act as an agent for change when often it's non-healthcare practitioners dictating the rules to do with healthcare? It's, it's really hard. So, mm. I mean, New South Wales, we're really lucky because our justice and forensic health um, 
health service, local health district, mm. is actually, it's health. But in some other jurisdictions, um, health in prisons sits under prisons rather than under health. And I think that makes it really difficult. It's challenging. It's I just actually hosted the Justice Health Conference for oh, the last two, okay. which was fantastic. Yeah. And it is wonderful having the health practitioners oh, running it's health phenomenal. in prisons. It makes a huge yeah. difference. Um, so Marilyn's asking, she's got a master's degree in advanced nursing skills and she wants to do a master's in nursing as a practitioner. She's saying the only thing that stopped her was a lack of support from her workplace. Is there a place that she could go? You know, where should she be going to get that support given her workplace isn't providing it? It, look, and that's really difficult too. You can actually, so you can do a master's of nurse practitioner without having a transitional position, but it does make it more difficult because you have to find your placements yourself. But it is possible to do that. It yes. really depends where you want to work and what you want to do as to how you get those placements. But, you know, you end up doing those in your own time, which why these scholarships are so exciting that have been announced. Mm. You know, we just have to wait a while for them. Um, but, you know, basically, they will assist nurses to become nurse practitioners, skilled nurses to become nurse practitioners. So we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I'm just going to quickly try to get through. You gave us some great examples of nurses who've going on to, to do some amazing jobs. Yeah. And JB's asking, um, what advice would you have for the audience for people who might want to follow and either into politics or into, into the corporate sector? What experience and knowledge should they be getting now to set them up for that sort of tra trajectory? Gee, that's a really good question. Um, I think what you need to understand, what you need to do is read widely about what the political issues are. You need to read Hans... I, I, look, I'm an absolute sook, because I, you know, strange person, sorry, I should say not sook. I love Hansard. <laughs> I read Hansard a lot. Um, I know, I need to get a life. <laughs> but I, I think reading things like Hansard, where you actually see the quality of political debate, rather than just watching what comes on mm. the TV. Sorry, Sophie. But no, 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 you know, I agree. Go, go to the primary source. Yeah, and also maybe mentoring sources. can be a big issue. Yes, mentoring would be yeah. great. And, and look, the thing that I know about the nurses who are in those really senior positions, and certainly I'm not in a senior position like them, but, you know, I am a professor emeritus at the University of Sydney. I mentor constantly. And I mentor lots and lots of people. So my view is that I stand on the shoulders of giants. That's what got me to where I am. And, and that's what every one of us in senior positions must do. We must support you guys to be mm. the best that you can possibly be. Excellent. Look, we might, we might finish on that very uplifting note. So please give Mary a big round of applause for her advocacy, her passion. She's amazing. We love her. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that this land was never ceded. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.